Welcome to Journey South Bay. Thank you for inviting us in to listen to God's Word. Take a moment to get comfortable, sit back, and relax as we listen to today's message. Second Corinthians verse 8, 1 through 15, encouragement to give generously. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as command, but to prove by earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. The Cheerful Giver, verse 9, 6 through 12. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Seth Myers uh, tells a story about some guys in Vermont who their buddy Angelo was getting married, so they wanted to start a celebration for him. So they sent out an email to invite people and give them the details of the weekend. And uh, one of the people on the email was not intended to get the email. It was a guy named Will Novak from Arizona. And uh, Will got the email, and instead of saying, hey, you got the wrong address, he responded, this sounds amazing, count me in. And um, instead of the guys getting that email back and saying, hey, we actually did not mean to send this to you, please disregard, they said, you sound cool, get up here. And then they thought, well, 
Please send us a picture of yourself so we make sure you're not a serial killer. So Will sends them a picture of himself in third grade uh, from karate class. All posed out. This became the t-shirt for the weekend. But you know, it was foolish to uh, actually leave Arizona and go to Vermont for the weekend uh, because Will was a new dad. He had like a four or five month old baby, new job. It would be crazy to spend money on this. So he did what every 28-year-old would do and started a GoFundMe account to send him to Vermont for the weekend. He wanted to raise $500 for a plane ticket. He raised $2,500 in a matter of two hours. This got word on the internet. He shows up. Uh, all sorts of restaurants want to participate in supplying this weekend. Enterprise gave everybody a Maserati, and Will became the hero of the weekend. We're going to talk about giving and money the next two weeks. And the moment that this comes up in the Bible, it feels like this unwanted email. Like, we did not mean to send this to you. Like the guest who we're afraid is going to ruin the party. But the testimony throughout the church is that the practice of generosity and the involvement in, with it in your life actually ends up being one of the greatest guests in the party of the Christian life you can ever have. So I'm begging you, I know that this feels like the uncle you never want to come to your wedding to just pause and let God speak to you about the idea of giving for the next two weeks. And let it surprise you as the guest who you probably never wanted to come but may end up making it all worth it. This text that was just written for us, almost all scholars will say that this is the longest and most detailed uh, passage in all the Bible that we have on the idea of generosity. And there's four things that I think we'll see if we read it together. And that's the nature of generosity. Uh, Secondly, the danger if we don't have it. Third, a vision for it. And fourth, the power to actually become generous. So first, uh, the nature of generosity. Uh, So here's the situation that Paul's writing into. Uh, We see this in the first uh, several verses, uh, that there was a, a group of people Uh, in in Judea who were uh, starving from a famine. And uh, they needed severe help. Uh, They were were dying. They had no supplies. They had no money to meet any of their needs. And uh, the situation uh, in Corinth is that uh, they're actually a very uh, well-off church. Uh, They've got lots of resources. They've got plenty of ability to help and, and care for these people. But what's fascinating is as Paul appeals to them and talks to them about helping these people in famine, uh, starvation situations, he doesn't do so uh, with guilt, shame, or even commands. Look how he appeals. He says this in verse 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. And then in verse 11, so now finish doing as it is well, so that your readiness is, desire, is desiring it and maybe matched by completing what you have. He's, he's saying, I, I don't want to force this on you. I want you to be eager to do this. 
I, I want you to do this out of the joy overflowing of your soul. And then maybe most explicitly, he says in chapter 9 in the next section of verse 7, each one must decide to give in his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, what, what Paul's drawing out here for all of us is that the nature of generosity is almost all motivation. It's almost all a situation of the heart. Now, when you get into the idea of ethics and moral philosophy, uh, this is really fascinating, what Paul is doing and how Christianity thinks about generosity, because how he's addressing this almost never applies to any other ethical situation. I mean, can you imagine Paul talking about adultery this way? Like, each one must decide whether or not he wants to be faithful to his spouse. I mean, it would, it would be insane. You, you would say, like, what, what are you talking about, Paul? And, and the reason he's talking about this is because uh, of, of the unique nature of generosity. I mean, it, it, it's, it's like adultery and it's unlike something like adultery. I mean, it's like it in that it is uh, sinful and destructive to personal relationships and corporate relationships and heinous in the eyes of God. But generosity is unlike something like adultery because it's intangible. You know, there's no line that we distinctly know. Like if you give this much, then you're generous. But if you give less than this amount, then you're not. And so there's actually no, almost no way to do that, it, to figure out the immediate number to know whether or not you're practicing generosity. I mean, you, you're, you're, there's never a moment where you're like, uh, oh, you're not my spouse. Oops. It's clear in sins like adultery and things, other things like that. But in generosity, there is no simple line. And what this means is that the sin, the negative side of it, greed, and the positive practice of generosity is almost completely a matter of the heart. That your attitude towards what you're doing is everything. Now, some of you might say, well, well what about the tithe? Uh, look, in, in Old Testament Israel, it was absolutely commanded that you, you must give 10%. And without going into uh, all of the details and the practice of theocratic Israel, it's fascinating that Paul does not bring that up here. And it's also never talked about in, in actually any of the texts in the New Testament about giving, except when in Luke 11, when Jesus talks to the Pharisees about their practices. And what Jesus says to the Pharisees is he says, you tithe everything, but you do not love justice or your neighbor. And what Jesus says is that for the Pharisees, look, all of your giving has this idea. How much do I have to give in order to be blessed and get what I really want, which is the blessings of God? And he says, because that's your, that's your pursuit. He says, I condemn you. And what Jesus is doing there is, is he says, listen, it, it's not about 
a tangible amount in meeting that. It's completely a matter of the heart because if there's an amount that you think that you can give in order to meet that standard and to feel better about yourself or to feel like you're getting off the hook or feeling like this is the way to get blessings, Jesus is actually saying, you're not giving, you're investing in yourself. Let me, let me explain. Charles Spurgeon used to tell this story about a fable. He said uh, there was a man who uh, comes to his king and he says, uh, oh, great king, I love you and you are the best king we've ever had and you are worthy of all of my love and adoration and so I'm a farmer and this is the best carrot I've ever grown and I just wanted to give this to you. So the king looked at the man and discerned his heart, and he said, you know what, I have 10 fields right next to your land. Why don't you take two of those? So one of the magistrates behind the curtain hears this story and thinks, man, two fields for a carrot. Well, what can I give? So he walks up to the king and says, oh, great king, you're my favorite king, the most wonderful king we've ever had. He says, this is my best horse. I want you to have this horse. And the king discerns his heart and says, thank you very much. And dismisses him. And the man gets disgruntled and the king goes, let me explain. He says, that man gave me a carrot. But you gave yourself the horse. And what Spurgeon is talking about is the same thing that Paul is drawing out for us here. Look, it's all a matter of the heart. Because it, if, if your heart is run by joy and an overflow of the wonderful nature of the gospel and not by anxiety, then the amount will almost take care of itself. Because you'll always be pressing yourself to want to do more and to give more because it's a matter of, of the overflow of joy and not about meeting some sort of particular standard. I mean, Jesus doesn't, he doesn't dismiss the tithe as like, that's, that's too much. But what he's pressing the Pharisees on is something that we need to be pressed on. Is, do we give to give or to get ourselves off the hook? And what Jesus wants you to understand and think about is that the nature of generosity is all a matter of joy. Secondly, though, we need to consider the danger if that's not going on in our heart. That there's a danger that if we don't address that giving is actually a reflection of something going on deeply inside of us. And I'm thinking of the middle section that's printed for, uh, that was read for you from chapter 8, which, to be honest with you, it, it is a very uh, difficult passage to sort of understand uh, what Paul is saying here in talking about generosity in verses 12 to 15. But what really uh, gives a little bit of clarity to it is when he says, uh, he says in verse 13, for I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. But then he says this in verse 15, as it is written, whoever gathered had nothing left over, and whoever gathered had no lack. 
Now, what's going on here? Well, right there, he says, it is written. He's quoting Exodus 16. Now, here's what was happening in Exodus 16. The children of Israel have walked through the Red Sea and been delivered from Pharaoh in an island in the wilderness, in the middle of nowhere in the desert, with nothing around them to supply life. And so what God does is he gives them a miracle and provides this thing called manna. And there's tons of uh, scholarly research about like what is manna, but literally the Hebrew manna says, it is this. It's just like, it was just this. And uh, what we know is it was like some sort of flour that you could bake cakes with, make bread with, but you could eat with. And here's how it worked. Every morning, manna would sort of rain down and be on the ground. And you had to get up and you had to go out and collect it and bring it in. But you must not take more than your family needs for that day. And anything that you tried to take that you didn't need that day and you hoarded would begin to rot and to smell and to have worms and maggots and stuff upon it. And so Paul's giving this illustration of manna to talk about the nature of generosity and what, what can happen to us if we don't begin to dive into the nature of it. And, and there's sort of two implications here. One, he says, you have to begin to think about your money and resources as a gift. That is, the manna that was given to the Israelites Look, they had to get up, and they had to go out, and they had to do work. They had to collect it. There were definitely some people who were more able to do that. There were younger people. There were more able people. And there were people who did not have the ability to do this quite as well. But no matter where you were, you could not do any work if the gift did not precede the work that you were given to do. If God did not rain down the manna and let it be there, there would have been no work for you to collect from. And man, you have to begin to think about your resources this way. Because the moment that generosity and giving comes up, we have sort of a natural human instinct to sort of say, hey, 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 like this, this is mine. And, you ha- and we want to appeal to you have no how how hard I have worked for this, how much I have labored for this. But one of the things that we appeal to makes us blind to some of the other circumstances around us. You know, your resources, you, you have to think about this. How many people were involved in your life to make it possible for you to do what you do? I mean, one, uh, you had to be born. You didn't cause that. Two, you were educated. None of you did that. People did that for you. You were trained by somebody else. You were helped by other people. And when whatever uh, commodity you're in, you're dependent on other people to both receive your work, invest in your work, work with you, and be a part of you. There are so many things happening in and around you 
that allow you to invest in the work that you're doing. And what Paul, and when he talks about manna here, he's trying to say, listen, none of the things that you're going out doing do not begin to happen without all of the gift that precedes it. And, and if you don't think that it's a gift that you're going to collect and be a part of, you will always hold on to your money with tight hands and think this is only a matter of what I myself have done and accomplished. But the second thing the illustration tells us about manna is that if you try to hoard it and hold on to too much, it'll rot your soul. There was an article uh, in the Washington Post a couple years ago called Being Rich Wrecks Your Soul. We used to know that. And in the article, um, this man's not a Christian. He talks about uh, how Aristotle used to talk about money. He says Aristotle in in, uh, his day warned uh, about the accumulation of wealth for anything except for the benefit of your neighbor in your society. And he talked, Aristotle talked incessantly about the accumulation of wealth being the incredible threat to your character and your virtues. But he says today, we do not think about wealth this way at all. We don't, we don't collectively think about the pursuit of it and the attainment of it as a danger to our character. We think about it as one of the greatest blessings and benefits that possibly is out there for life. And anybody who has it, we almost envy their life. And anybody who falls in mistakes, we don't ever think it's because the circumstances of a large amount of money are dangerous and polluting to life. We go, well, they just have bad character and they couldn't handle it. But what Aristotle said is that nobody could handle this. And almost nobody is set up to handle this because the circumstances are not built for who we are as human beings. The author goes on to say this. Some studies go so far as to suggest that the simply being around great material wealth makes people less willing to share. That's right. Vast sums of money poison not only those who possess them, but even those who are merely around them. And Paul, Paul is in a gentle way, trying to warn us about what can happen to us as human beings in the same way that this secular person is trying to put brakes on American society and say, if we don't discover the heart of generosity, these kinds of things can happen to us. So what do we do? Well, thirdly, you've got to get a vision for generosity. If you, want, if you want to move into the heart of it and walk away from the danger of it, you've got to get a vision for what, uh, what this could be. Um, I'm thinking about this in verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 6, when, when Paul says this. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give what he has decided in his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
Now again, Paul's using another metaphor here that teaches about the vision for giving. And this metaphor, he says, is like a farmer. That you sow seeds and you reap something wonderfully from it. And giving and generosity works this way. Now, it's been poorly understood sometimes in the church that this is a way uh, to sort of promote a prosperity gospel. That if you give a lot of money away, what God will do is see your great gifts and bless you with more money. But that's not how the metaphor works. Because if, think about the, a farmer. A farmer sows seed not to reap seeds. A farmer sows seed to reap a fruit. And what the metaphor is trying to say is that what you sow will be different from what you reap. But you'll sow something good and get something better. And what's the better thing? He tells us in verse 9, as it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now, this is a quote from Psalm 112. And when he says, uh, his righteousness endures forever, this is not necessarily a, a reference to how we sometimes think about righteousness. There are times in the Bible where righteousness uh, refers to what is needed in order for us to have a right standing with God. But the Hebrew word uh, zedak uh, had actually multiple ways of it being used, sometimes vertically for what is needed in order to be in front of a holy God, but other times it had implications horizontally. As in the image of righteousness uh, is a vision of things in this world being put back right. Things in this world being restored to the right way that God wants them. Peter talks about this in his letter, in his second letter. He says this in 2 Peter 3. But according to his promise, that is God, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now there, he's not saying in the new heavens and the new earth, there's going to be a bunch of people who just obey the law. It's not less than that. But the vision that, Paul, that Peter is talking about there in that particular passage is he says, in the new heavens and the new earth, the picture, the restoration of this world where there's no more poverty, where there's no more sickness, where there's no more sadness, where there's no more division of, of, of undistributed wealth. He says, this will not exist. It will be finally a world that we are craving and long for now. And Paul is, what he's saying when he's quoting Psalm 112 here, is he is saying that when you begin to give, you are sowing seeds into this world that are going to be reaped for a renewal in the world to come for forever. That is, you can give money away into the renewal of something that you may see benefiting from 10,000 years from now. 
And I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you a little picture of this. Do you know why you exist as a church today? Probably because some people in Southern California had a Bible and began to believe in the Lordship of Jesus and the mission of the gospel here in Southern California. And all of you have that Bible and uh, were compelled to be a part of a church like this. And do you know why you have that Bible? Because a man named William Tyndale looked at the church in the 15th century and said, this is, this is corrupt. Nobody knows the gospel. And nobody can read the Bible because it's all in Latin. And nobody speaks Latin because it's been a dead language for 800 years. And so at the risk of his life, what he wanted to do was to translate the Bible into English. But the problem was William Tyndale was incredibly poor. He had no resources. He had no means really to live on. And so in the south part of London, one night he was preaching a sermon. And after his sermon, a man came up to him and said, can I treat you to a steak dinner? So the man takes William out for dinner and he said, I, you know, I never hear sermons anymore uh, that I'm engaged in like I was engaged in with you tonight. You were talking about the Bible and you were talking about, the G- you were talking about Jesus and you were talking about all these rich Christian truths that I've just not heard anymore. And he says, I, I long for our city to hear more and more and more about this. And William gave him his vision. Hey, what if everybody had the Bible? What if all of the churches had Bibles to give people and gave them all these things? And the man said, that would be incredible. How do we do that? And William said, well, I've wanted to do this, but I don't have really any funds to do it. And the man said, I will fund it. And do you know why you have a Bible on your phone? It's because a man named Humphrey Monument gave a lot of money to this man named William Tyndale. And you are reaping the benefits of that today, along with about 600 million people in this world right now. Do you you know that you can sow those kinds of seeds today? And 20,000 years from now in the new heavens and new earth, people will know stories of that the same way we know Henry Monument's story today. The idea of generosity is not do this because if you don't, you're a bad person. It's do you know what can happen in this world if you will begin to sow these kinds of seeds? It will become the world that you long to live in today. And the the amazing part of the Christian mission is that you can begin to invest in this now. Now, some of you go, well, I I don't have uh, huge funds to make movements like that happen. Look, it's it's a matter of the heart. One of my friends uh, who lives here has given tons of money away, and I asked him one time, I was like, Carl, uh, how did you learn to do this? And he said, when I was about 22, somebody talked to me about giving. He was like, I'm a college student. I don't have any money. And he said, just start giving $5 away a month. Just start doing that now. 
And he said, what that began to do is it began to train in my heart the practice of sowing seeds in other, other people and other things God was doing. And so the more accumulated seeds I wanted to show, so... Look, gather a vision for what kind of seeds and what kind of harvest you can reap here in the South Bay. And friends, join in that mission by gathering a vision for that. Now, what will drive you into that vision is fourthly and lastly, you got to have the power for it. Look back in chapter 8. Paul gives the testimony of the Macedonians. He says this, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord and begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Okay, here's the testimony that he's telling them. He's not saying uh, the Macedonians bankrupted themselves and were willing to starve themselves for the other needs, and you need to now go supply their needs. That's not what he's saying. The vision and the call for generosity in Christianity never calls you to, uh, to become poor and impoverished yourself and starve your family for the sake of another cause. What their testimony was is they lived on this much. And it wasn't much, but it got them by and it met their needs. And they realized if we sacrificed this much, we can still live and it meets most of our basic needs. And we realize if we invest this, we will relieve and give so much kingdom healing to those people who are starving. And so what they did is they sacrificially lowered their standard of living for the sake of something else. Now why did they do this? Paul tells us in verse 5, he says, not in this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and by the will of God to us. He says, they gave because they first gave themselves to the Lord. See, a person who says, how much do I have to give in order to relieve some of their suffering has not given themselves away. They've given, they're, held, they're holding on to themselves. But a person who says, what will it take for them to be okay? Is somebody who has given themselves completely to the Lord. And says, the joy of worship and of healing and loving my brothers, that is the fullness of life. And it comes because you first give yourself to the Lord. Now, why would you do that? Well, because Paul tells you this in, in chapter 9, verse 8. He says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you. So, so that having all sufficiency in all things, 
you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, is given to the poor. That is not the verse I was trying to read. No, 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 sorry. Back up in chapter 8. Excuse me. He says this. Chapter 8, verse 9. Here's why you can give yourself fully to the Lord. This is Paul's logic. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Look, here's how Christian generosity works. It is not by even looking at the needs of others. It's not by looking at the standard that you need to meet up to. It's by looking at your Savior. And Paul is saying this. Jesus was the jewel of the Father's eye. The Father loved him from all of eternity. He treasured him more than anything else. And his most prized possession, he freely gave him all up for you because you were spiritually impoverished and you were utterly lost. And God wanted you to become rich and wanted you to become stored. And so what it is he did? He became the most generous God ever. And what, what Paul is doing is he's taking the gospel into economic terms. And he is saying, listen, think about your money with the gospel. Because what religion will do is is religion will say to you, if you want to be a good person and you want God's blessings and you want to have a good life and you want all these things to happen to you, then give money away and God will make your life better. And you'll be loved and you'll be accepted. But the gospel says this. While you wanted nothing to do with him, while you were holding on to everything for yourself, God gave himself completely for you. He opened himself up fully for you and gave it all away. Not knowing how you would respond so that you could become rich. And what Paul is urging you to do is he says, you want to learn how to give things away? Give yourself to the Lord. And how can you hold on to any part of yourself before a God who has given himself fully to you? He says, get out the gospel and dip down into it. Herman Melville had a short story called uh, Benita Serrano. And it's about a revolutionary um, slave ship that has uh, been uh, escaped war and is drifting out in the middle of the ocean with no resources. And as they begin to, to die uh, of the lack of food and water, a friendly vessel uh, appears in their sight. And so they take uh, uh, a mirror and they begin to sign to them, water, water, 
we die of thirst. And the friendly vessel begins to signal back, cast down your buckets where you are. And the ship hears the signal and says, what what are you talking about? We're in the ocean. We drink this, we'll die. So they flash back again, water, water, send us water. Again, the friendly vessel flashes back, cast down your buckets where they are. They think they're misunderstanding them. So again, they flash again, water, water, again, please send water a third time, a fourth time, a fifth time. Again, the friendly vessel flashes back, cast down your buckets where you are. Finally, the captain of the dying ship looks down and realizes his ship has drifted into the mouth of the Amazon River. Fresh reviving water. Cast down your buckets where you are. Look, here's how you become generous as a church. You don't need to look at all the needs even. You don't need to look at all the demands or any standards out in the world. Cast down your buckets into the gospel you know. Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look, Journey South Bay, you know the gospel. Dip your resources down into it. For your neighbor, for the world, for a harvest to come. Let me pray. Father, help us to get out the gospel. Lord, anybody who doesn't know the gospel, Lord, we don't want their money. We want them to know you and to know the incredible economic gift that Jesus was to us. And we want to become a people, Lord, that is empowered by your extravagant grace to us, that we may be an extravagant church to everyone around us. Lord, revive in us a vigorous heart for giving, driven by your love, and your vision for the world to come. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to the RSS podcast feed. This will let you know when a new message has been posted. You can also look for us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram at Journey South Bay. Until next time, God bless.